Today I'm going to talk about a different take on how to please God. And I'm going to start off by telling the story of Joe. He's not a real person, by the way, but you'll be introduced to Joe. And then we're going to talk about what Joe discovers in the Bible. And then we're going to end up by how it works out in practice in Joe's life. So those are the three things we're going to be looking at today. So Joe is a guy, becomes a Christian, and learns that all his sins are forgiven. And he is so happy to learn that. All his sins are forgiven. This is wonderful. He's excited, um, full of joy, the best thing he could, he could possibly want. Um, his burden is light and his life is happy. But then I, he starts reading the Bible and he discovers all of these commands in the Bible. And somebody tells him that to please God, he needs to keep all of these commandments. Every day, he examines himself and goes through a checklist of all the things that he's doing. Am I doing this? No, I haven't murdered today. Have I done this? And checks through. And um, he's, it, he's finding it hard, but he's told that he has the spirit to help him. But even with the spirit to help him, he's finding it a great burden. So here's poor Joe struggling along with his burden, um, trying to keep the law. And those are the two stone tablets on his back there. <clears throat> anyway, but then Joe is told one day where he meets some people who explain to him he's not under Moses, he's under Jesus. He's not under this weight of the Old Testament law anymore. He's under Jesus. And he's happy again. Uh, it's not the old external law he's under, but it's under Jesus' law. Isn't that wonderful news? But then he starts reading Jesus' commands and discovers that Jesus' laws are far harder to keep than Moses. Because Moses said, you shall not murder. Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Moses said, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus said, if you look at somebody lustfully, you're committing adultery. And so on. And so he realized that um, Jesus' laws are far harder. So... Poor Joe is sad again. The standards seem to be so much higher, and it's so hard to try and do this every day to follow all of these laws. But then he goes to a new church where they teach grace. And I'm putting grace in quotes because people mean different things by grace. He learns that he's now not under law, but he's under grace. He's told that he's nothing, there's nothing he can do to make God love him more. That God completely loves him. And he's so happy, he's relaxed. Does he look happy? Yeah, yeah so this is how he is. He's just full of joy. Um, and uh, I just want to say, uh, this, this, this isn't the church that he goes to, but there are some churches now, they're called the Extreme Grace Movement. And Extreme Grace, um, what they would say is that anything that Jesus taught during his life, before his death, is is part of the old law, and it's nothing to do with us. So all of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that I've been talking about, you know, with, with loving your enemies and so on, that is, that's the old. We're not under that. We're only under what happened after Jesus was raised from the dead. 
And there are some problems with that, like I say, loving your enemies, because Jesus taught that. There are other problems with that, like um, Jesus preached the kingdom. He went out preaching the kingdom. This is part of his preaching of the kingdom. Was the kingdom part of the old or part of the new? So it doesn't really help Joe to hear this kind of extreme grace, because it's really not what the Bible is saying. Anyway, but he's, this new church teaches grace. But then after a while, he becomes confused. He's not quite sure. What, if there's nothing he, nothing he can do to make God love him more, what should he be doing? Like, what, what about those commands of Jesus? Those things that Jesus said about loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you and all of those things. What, how does he relate to them? Are they important? Should he just ignore them? He's very confused by all of this and doesn't really know how should I go about trying to please God then if it's not about these laws, if all these commands of Jesus are irrelevant. Um, so, but then he's told that, that now he's free to obey Jesus motivated by love, not law. So this relieves him quite a bit because he still knows what he should be doing. He still should be following Jesus' commands. He should still be reading what Jesus says and loving your enemies and and uh, and doing good to those who, who spitefully treat you. And he still should not be, you know, hating his brother and all that sort of thing. But his motivation is not in order to avoid being punished. His motivation is out of love, and that's good. That's great. That's that's. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's good teaching. Um, so uh, he tries to do this, and he's constantly reminding himself that he's not owning God's love. He's just doing it because he loves God. Does this sound good? Does this sound like a good, a good theology, good teaching? So he carries on like this, but then he begins to be a bit uneasy. He still feels this vague sense of unease. The problem is this, that... He never feels that he's doing enough. He knows that what God gave him was a gift. It's a free gift. It's all grace. It's loved by the Father. There's nothing he can do to earn God's favor. But there's this vague feeling that God's not happy with him and that he's disappointing God. Do you ever have that feeling that you're disappointing God, that you, you know that God thinks you could be doing better? So he's getting this kind of feeling. What, what does actually God, what, what should I be doing? Uh, if I was to say to you right now, um, when God looks at you right now, is he pleased with your life? What does that feel like to be asked that question? Probably not good. You probably think, well, you know, I'm doing okay in that area, but you know, maybe God's not so happy about that. And, and we, we, we might answer, well, it doesn't really matter because I'm, I'm saved by Jesus' righteousness. And we can say that, but I suspect that most of you feel deep down inside that you're letting God down to a certain extent. You're not the kind of Christian you could be, that he's disappointed in you. Even though we teach grace and you know that God's love is not dependent on your performance, yet you've just got this uneasiness. And this is a problem that plagues many churches, um, especially churches like ours, that teach grace. So, one day, Joe was reading Romans and Galatians, and finally it clicked. He got the answer. 
He realized what it was, and he's happy again. So this is Joe's story. So this is my first, the first point today, going through Joe's story. The second one is I want to talk about what Joe discovered. What Joe discovered that changed everything. He got it. He was so obvious that he wondered why he hadn't seen it before. So first of all, he was reading in Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, he read, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Hmm, he thought. Then he read on to verse 9. Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So what's that about? Then verse 22. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him. Huh, he thought. This counted seems to be important. It seems to be there in several places. What does this mean? This counted him as righteousness. And then he looked on in Galatians chapter 3. It says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There he thought, there it goes again. This expression counted to him as righteousness. What is it, he thought? What's this about? So uh, let's just zoom in on verse 3. And this is, uh, so I want to just say that uh, that quote is from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So Romans chapter 4 verse 3, let's go back to that verse. Uh, This is how he'd always been taught to read this verse. Abraham had faith on the base, and on that basis, so Abraham trusted in Jesus, he had faith in Jesus, and on the basis of that faith, God transferred the righteousness of Christ to Abraham, and Abraham's sin to Christ, who paid for it on the cross. So he, all his sin was gone, because Jesus paid for it, and Jesus' gift of righteousness given to him because of his faith. And that's how he'd been taught to believe it. Uh, that's what he was, how he was taught to understand it. Now, of course, it's true. Jesus did die for our sin and Abraham and, and Abraham's sins. And that is how God could forgive Abraham. He forgave him because of what Jesus did. So that's absolutely true. And it is a free gift. And we receive this free gift by faith. That's absolutely true. But is that actually what that verse is saying? Um, the verse, just to remind you, that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. What does that mean? So uh, let's, uh, the first thing I want to do, I want to, to define some of the terms here. Uh, the word faith is exactly the same as the word trust. In English, we have two words, but in the language the Bible's New Testament was written in Greek, there's, there's only one word used. It's the same word, faith and trust. And faith is a kind of a nebulous word um, in our culture, and trust is very specific. You trust somebody. And so I'm going to prefer to use the word trust because it's got more of this concrete idea that was there in the New Testament. I mean, nowadays, um, religions are called faith communities, whether or not they actually believe in trusting God or not. They're, you know, faith is a very nebulous form. Um, so Abraham, so if we read Abraham's trust was counted to him as righteousness, What does that mean? Okay, so the word righteousness, you can't be righteous unless there's some sort of standard of righteousness. Um, So you have to have a framework. So, for example, 
um, in the Old Testament, to be righteous under the law, you had to have kept all the laws. You have to have kept all of those commands. And then that, that law was called a covenant. And you make that agreement. And if you behave rightly within that agreement, you're called righteous. And so if I make an agreement with somebody, say I make an agreement with Jitin, and I keep all my obligations within that, I am righteous within that agreement. That's what righteousness means. It means you've commit, you've kept the requirements of the, the arrangement that you're under. Um, so, uh, so for example, um, a woman who lives a couple of doors down to us, Becky, she lives in the, in the US for six months of the year and she has an agreement with Anne that Anne is going to look after her property while she's away, make sure the snow is cleared, go in and check once a week, and they have this agreement. And so if Anne does all of those things, Anne is righteous under that agreement. That's what the word righteous means in the Old Testament It's and in the New. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's somebody who've met the obligations of the agreement. And usually when we're thinking of righteousness, we think of God's law. We think of his commands. And Paul, this is why Paul spends the first few chapters of Romans establishing what this righteousness is, what the covenant framework is. And he says even the Gentiles who are not under the law still have a, a, an understanding of the law that they can be judged by, whether they're righteous or not. Uh, so this is very important. So if we define righteousness as mean having un, having met the obligation of the covenant, met the obligation of the covenant, the covenant being this arrangement that is with, with God. So now we can rewrite the verse. Abraham's trust was counted as having met the obligations of the covenant. What that, this actually means is actually revolutionary. This is and if you get this, you'll understand my message today. He's saying, Abraham, you've trusted me, and that's all I require of you. I'm pleased with you. All I require of you is that you trust me. And this is the covenant in Genesis 15 with Abraham. Do you know what we call this covenant with Abraham? We call it the, the, the covenant of grace with Abraham, he, or the covenant of promise, Paul calls it. And this is the gospel to Abraham. So what God is saying, under this arrangement I'm making with you, this agreement I'm making with you, I'm going to consider that you have, you have fulfilled all the requirements of this agreement if you've trusted me. That is what my agreement requires. That's the only requirement within this agreement is that you trust me and I will count then you've met all the obligations. Now this raises a problem because God is a perfect judge and Abraham has done a lot of bad things. So, you know, he we, he did. He, he lied and he cheated and all sorts of things. Um, and this is indeed a problem because uh, Paul addresses this and Paul says specifically, how can God be just and yet declare Abraham as righteous. How can he be just and be the ju- yet be the justifier of somebody who does sin? And that is why Jesus' death was necessary. Jesus had to die to pay for all of Abraham's failures so that God could count his only obligation as being trust. If Jesus hadn't died, all of those obligations would be there. But the only God was able to make this agreement that limited his obligations to trust because of what Jesus did. So 
um, you can see there are two sides of the coin. Jesus' salvation, what he did on the cross, enabled God to treat humans differently, enabled them to bring a new kind of arrangement between them where this was the one thing that was required. So what Jesus did freed Abraham from the law and frees us from the law, enabled Abraham to live under this arrangement where God was, all God was looking for was trust. And the same thing was us. So I want to sum this up. What Joe discovered was this. He was loved by God, whatever, because of what Jesus had done. Well, he knew that before. But what he knows now is to please God day by day, what he has to do is to trust him. That is what God is asking. God is asking what God is particularly interested in your life is that you are moment by moment trusting him in all that you do. Now, it's not unimportant that you, you, you keep, you know, the laws. The laws are important because I'll come on to that in just a minute. But what God is asking you to do is to trust him. So as Joe was thinking about this, and Joe was just so excited and so happy that finally he got an answer, he started thinking, what was it that Jesus received the most pleasure in? What made Jesus the happiest when he was on earth? And he remembered that it was when people trusted him. The Roman centurion who trusted in Jesus' ability to heal his servant at a distance in in Mark in Matthew 10 sorry Matthew 8 verse 10 when Jesus heard this he marveled and said to those who followed him truly i tell you with no one in israel have i found such faith and this is the man who said you just have to say the word jesus and my son will be healed you don't have to come you just say the word and jesus was so pleased because that showed he was trusting him he was uh, he had a confidence in Jesus' power. There was another story of a woman who brought, who had a daughter who was in all kinds of trouble and, and uh, needed healing. And in Matthew 15, 28, we read, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Why was that? Because the woman had told Jesus she just trusted him, that she knew he could do it. Um, little children that came to Jesus who simply trusted him, it brought him so much pleasure that, that they would do this. So Jesus had the most pleasure in the records we have of him interacting with people when they trusted him. And then Joe remembered a couple of other important passages. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, Without trusting God, it is impossible to please him. Without trusting God, it's impossible to please him. And then Romans 14, 23, For whatever does not come from faith is sin. So Joe's very excited now because he believes he has the answer. And he does indeed have the answer. The answer to the question, is God pleased with me? He's pleased with me when I simply trust him. He's pleased with me when I trust him. And this isn't a work. Now, so some people have said, well, this is just turning trust into just another, just another thing you have to do, just another law. You know, it may have replaced 10 commandments with one, but it's still a command. So what's the answer to that? Well, the answer is actually it's a gift. 
So even the trust that we have, we can't do without a gift, uh, and, and, and without it being given as a gift. There was a man who came to Jesus who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so all of us need to grow in that. It's not that you do or you don't. It's something you grow in, um, and you grow in as you're given it. The man said, help my unbelief. And Jesus helps us to grow in this gift. So this is, this is the, the, uh, the first part, which I talked about Joe's story and his quest. The second part was how Joe found the answer to his quest in Romans and Galatians. And now I want to talk about what it looked like on Monday morning when Joe started trying to live this out in his life. What it looks like in practice to be living this kind of thing. So, Joe wakes up on Monday morning and he's slightly later than he should have been because he forgot to set his alarm. And he quickly prays to God, forgive me of my negligence, please look after this problem, and then he trusts God with it. He doesn't feel guilty because God's not so much interested in Joe's alarm-setting performance as what Joe's response is to making the mistake. Do you get that? God's, what God is really interested in how God, Joe responds to his failure to set the alarm. What's God, Joe going to do? Um, so he knows that he's, he shouldn't have done that. It was negligence, God, but God's forgiven him from that. Um, what's he going to do? Well, he, he, he realized he's got three choices. He could be late for work. He could uh, call in sick, which would be lying, or he could skip breakfast and get to work on time. So, uh, he realizes that the middle one would be wrong. He shouldn't call in sick. That would be wrong. Um, the, the first or the last are both of options. Uh, but he decides he could do either, uh, in trust, but he's going to skip breakfast and just go to work and get there on time. So he does that and he just trusts God that everything will be okay. He's somebody who actually needs his breakfast, but he trusts God. And then while he's on the, on the platform waiting for the subway train, he notices that there's a, there's some food there for sale and a bagel and coffee. And he, um, he's able to have some breakfast anyway, but it wouldn't have mattered if he didn't because he's trusting God. And that is what God is really interested in his response to that mess up. Um, so he arrives at work and he realizes instantly that his co-worker Mary is unhappy about something. And he knows, knows how easily they can push each other's buttons and realizes now it's about to happen. I don't know if you have any experiences at work with anybody who you're likely to get into a problem with. Um, so he knows in theory the answer is to show the love of Christ, um, but he experiences generally, no matter how hard he tries, it seems to end in an argument. Um, so he prays, God, I can't do this. You'll have to. I'm just going to trust you for what happens and just gives the whole thing to God. Well, um, before even, a, even replying to Mary, he sends up this tiny prayer to God. And amazingly, he never loses his temper. He never gets angry and gets irrational. He manages to keep calm during the whole thing, and he's really thankful. And then he feels God's pleasure, that he trusted God, and God responded to that. Um, then later today, he gets called into the boss's office, and he gets chewed out for something he didn't do. 
Have you ever had that? You know, you're treated unfairly by your boss and you're, 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 you're condemned and, and it just feels so unfair. And uh, so he tries the same method of trusting God with, with the boss. He still gets chewed out and he doesn't get any chance to show any love in return, doesn't get any chance to respond in a positive way. And so he goes out of the meeting and to start with, he just feels a failure. But then he realizes that he actually did what God required of him. Even though it didn't turn out wonderfully, he did what God required and trusted God in the situation. He simply trusted and that God is actually pleased with him for living in that trust. And then on the way home, his mind is on other things and he's not thought about God for hours. And suddenly he realizes that he's thinking about something he shouldn't, there's thoughts that are wrong thoughts in his mind, and immediately stops and he asks God for forgiveness. But then he doesn't beat himself up about his sin. He doesn't beat himself up about the wrong thoughts. He just trusts God's forgiven him and realizes that actually God is pleased with him now for accepting the forgiveness. And God is pleased. God has put the, God has forgotten what he did wrong, and God's focus is on the fact he's just trusting God for forgiveness, and he's pleased with his forgiveness. And he realizes that um, even though God hates sin, he's much more concerned about faith. He hates sin, but he's much more concerned about whether we trust him and how we respond. And when we fall into sin and ask for forgiveness, he's much more concerned that we trust that we're forgiven. So we need then to really focus, and I want to end with this, to focus on the question about what actually is this faith or trust? What is it precisely? Because if this is what it's all about, we really need to understand what it actually is. And... I'm going to say primarily it's an allegiance. Is our allegiance to God or is our allegiance to something else? The Bible calls it idols. It could be anything. It could be our own pleasure, our own comfort, our, our, our whatever it is, but our allegiance to God or to something else. There's a, a more vibrant word for this faith trust, which is abiding. It's like you're, you're just living in his strength and in him and just trusting in him in that way. So I'm going to, to talk about uh, three uh, words used in the Bible to unpack what this trust is. And the first one is is rest. So it's a rest and dependence. So Abraham was promised a son. For 25 years, he didn't get the son before until Isaac was born 25 years later. And during that time, his trust went up and down, but basically... He rested in this promise of a son. So there's an element of trust where you can rest and you can say, I'm just going to give this to you. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, allow you to take this. And uh, I've mentioned before that, um, often when I'm preparing to preach a sermon, God decides me to, to take me through some sort of, um, experience which, of, of what I'm preaching about. And as I was preparing this, um, I was thinking, I've got, this is so important. I've got to do a good job. I've got to really get this across well. I've got, and then suddenly I felt God saying, isn't this about trusting Andrew? Shouldn't you be trusting me? And I thought, oh, you know, I, this is, I can trust God with this message. 
um, just as much. And, and it's his message. I can just give it to him. Why should I get worried and stressed about, am I going to preach a good sermon because this is so important, when actually it's about him and his strength? So I, I could just rest in him and say, I'm just going to trust you, God. I, it's not, it's not my strength. It's your strength. I'm going to trust you to communicate this message. I still did the preparation and got all the pictures right and everything, but it was, I don't stress about that because I'm giving him the, the, the worry. Um, so the next point is obedience. And this is where we connect to the commands. So obedience is a fruit of trust. So God said to Abraham, leave your own country and go to a country where I'm going to tell you. And we read that Abraham trusted God when he told him that. Now, supposing Abraham trusted God, but he never left his own country. He never left Ur of the Chaldees. What would that look like? Well, it's not trust, is it? Because if God tells you to do something and you trust him, then, um, then, uh, it's not, it's not, uh, you're not really trusting him because you can't separate trust from obedience. So if you're trusting Jesus and Jesus says, this is the way to live your life, you live your life by loving your enemies, then the act of loving your enemies is actually an act of trusting Jesus. You see? It, you end up by doing the same thing, but by a completely different route. You're not doing it because it's law. You're doing it because you really believe what Jesus says when he says that's the right way. You really believe that. If you were to say to me, Andrew, um, where's the men's washroom? And I say, we well, go out of that door and down the stairs. And then I see you head out of that door there. What would that feel like? Well, it would feel like you don't trust me, wouldn't it? Or, you know, have you ever, have you ever, somebody's asked your advice and they, you give them their advice and then you see them go off to someone else and ask exactly the same question to the next person. You know, there's not trust. Trust is when you actually do what the person tells you to. So you can't separate out obedience and trust. They're, they come to the same thing, but it's very, very different to a le- obedience of law. It's very different. You're obeying because of you really believe what that person says when they say this is the way to live. So Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Follow me. This is what Jesus' command was. And this is the same language that Jesus is using. Follow me, he says, is what the trusting is. And the last element of that I'm going to call perseverance, which means not giving up on the trust. And Abraham didn't give up. 25 years he waited and then the child was born. And so that, that is the, the, the uh, last element, the third element in what it means to have this trust. <clears throat> so, um, I want to summarize then with just a couple of points and maybe the worship team could come up while I'm going through these points. Two points to summarize with. <clears throat> The first is, God so loves it when you trust him. Why is that? Well, because when you, when you trust somebody, you're saying something about them as a person. Supposing I was to say, you know, Braden is so good with finances, he has such a good understanding of investments, that I've given him my entire retirement fund, retirement funds to invest for me. I, I haven't, by the way. But supposing I said that, I'd give him my entire retirement funds, but I do think he's trustworthy, and, and I think that he's... Uh, he, but anyway, what would that say about him? What would that say about him? 
to you. It would be really lifting him up, wouldn't it? It would be really, you'd think, wow, Andrew's given him his entire savings. He must, he must be trustworthy. So it raises that person up. So if you trust somebody and you, you explicitly trust, it's the best thing you can possibly do as validating their character. To trust somebody is the highest compliment you can pay somebody. The more trust you give them, the higher the compliment you're paying to that person. Um, a few months ago, I was talking to somebody and they, there was something happened and they said to me, Andrew, I trust that you would never abandon me. I know you would never abandon me. And that just felt so, wow, what more? That just brought tears to my eyes. And they said it in front of other people, what, what, what a better thing could somebody say about your character is you're not the kind of person that abandons people. You're the kind of person that's there till the end. That is the highest thing you can say. And you're saying that to God if you trust him. You're saying, God, I know that you will never abandon me. I know that you will be there for me forever. And that is why I'm going to trust you and I'm going to trust you in every decision I make in my life. So God loves it when you trust him. It brings him great pleasure. And so... I hope that this truth has entered your heart today because I believe it's so important. I believe it's so important to live the kind of, of victorious life, a kind of joyful life, a life of, of radiance that we grasp hold of this and that every we're con- conscious of a constant relationship with Jesus and him inviting us moment by moment to trust him and ask him, to, to asking him to take our load from us, give what we have to him and trusting him. So I'm just going to pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this best possible news that you haven't just dealt with our sin problem, but you've brought us into a relationship where we please you by trusting you and you count that as a requirement that you have for us. Lord, teach us to trust you more. Just as that man said to Jesus, help my unbelief, help my lack of trust. Give me more of it because I believe that you are trustworthy. Amen.